Congress recently agreed to throw tens of billions of dollars at the semiconductor industry. The idea was to expand production of vital circuits in the United States. My next guest has done extensive analysis of the chip industry and says there should be more to policy than only national security. He's an assistant professor of management at Radford University, Zach Collier. Professor Collier, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with the state of things as they are now. I mean, from what I've read, many areas the chip shortage is starting to ease. What is your sense of the situation right now? And if it is easing, where are the chips that are easing it coming from? Yeah, sure. So uh, it really depends on what sector you're looking at. For instance, the automotive sector is one of the sectors that was hit the most hard by the chip shortage. Lots of auto manufacturers had to delay production of their vehicles and shut down their assembly lines for some time. According to what some of the people in that industry are saying is that things are starting to uh, to ease, but it hasn't gotten back to normal yet. Uh, there are still shortages in other sectors like uh, household consumer goods, things like your washing machines and your smart refrigerators and all those sort of things as well are still looking at some shortages. Um, there were some problems in uh, sectors like uh, people couldn't get their uh, gaming consoles and uh, things like that as well. So I think uh, things are starting to come uh, back to, to normal, but uh, I think depending on what industry you're looking at, it, it may be uh, later this year or maybe early 2023 before things get back to normal. And I think other industries are just trying to figure out what does a new normal look like rather than get back to the sort of pre-pandemic state that we were in. In the defense sector, has that actually been a shortage? Because many of the circuits that are used in defense systems, embedded systems, are made here in the first place and always have been. Yeah. So the problem with uh, in the defense sector in particular is not always necessarily just the quantity, but the quality uh, of the chips that we're getting as well. Uh, those chips have to uh, meet very high standards as far as the security and integrity, quality and reliability of, of the, the chips in the systems that they go into. Think applications like fighter jets and submarines, all of the electronics that go into those sort of things have to uh, work under extreme conditions and they need to uh, be able to handle data, uh, you know, reliably. And so it's a uh, kind of a multi-pronged question. We want to have enough chips in the, in the supply coming down the pipeline for those sort of applications. But we also want to make sure that they're coming from uh, trusted suppliers here uh, in the States uh, to make sure that they meet various security requirements. And given that so many of these chips are made here, I mean, even Northrop Grumman, for example, they have fabs. So the billions, I guess it was about 50-some billion dollars that Congress appropriated, what is the best use of that to ensure economic independence, if you will, or economic growth in the consumer sector and whatever national security and federal-type missions are needed elsewhere? Some of the... Uh discussions are starting about how to allocate the $52 billion uh, that uh, was uh, in the CHIPS Act that recently passed. The White House has started to uh, make some appointments to key positions of leadership about how to roll out the, the CHIPS Act, as well as the uh, Department of Commerce. Uh, they recently put together a board of advisors and a steering committee of leadership within the federal government to try to figure out what those um, decisions are going to be. The Department of Commerce did put out a 
a report uh, sort of stating what some of the uh, high-level goals are and some of the strategy for the CHIPS Act implementation. So some uh, portion of the CHIPS Act is going to go towards leading-edge manufacturing. So these are the, the new, latest and greatest chips, if you will. But also, we need money allocated to current state-of-the-practice chips, as well as so-called legacy chips, uh, the sort of older, more mature chips that are in a lot of applications that we use today. The final sort of uh, bucket of, of funding that was identified by the uh, Department of Commerce is sort of a bundle of programs about um, R&D and economic development, uh, workforce development, and things like that. And so I think everybody's still just trying to figure out uh, exactly where to um, put those dollars to, to best use. And uh, we'll see kind of how that all takes shape, I think, within the next six months or so. We're speaking with Zach Collier. He's assistant professor of management at Radford University and a chip industry expert. Given the fact that the industry in the United States is profitable and the whole industry was pioneered here, the shortage didn't really emerge until the pandemic did. My question is, do we need this level of industrial policy or things were fine before the pandemic? Why are we throwing $52 billion at a profitable industry just to play devil's advocate? Sure. Well, so uh, a few things about that. Uh, one is that the supply chain is a, uh, really complex for uh, how you make a chip. And it's not just uh, you design it and then you manufacture it and then it's done. There are other steps that happen after the manufacturing and they go out on the wafer. You have to package and assemble and, and test all of the chips. And a lot of that is done overseas. Um, additionally, uh, the, the stat that gets uh, quoted often is that we manufacture about 12% of the, the world's chips, but we uh, we demand or consume uh, somewhere between a quarter and a third, depending on who you talk to. So even though uh, we might be producing a good number of chips, uh, we're still, there's still a supply demand imbalance, right? We've seen over the years that the manufacturing and, and other parts of the supply chain have, have really condensed and concentrated in parts of the world like Asia. You don't want to put all of your eggs in, in one basket when it comes to the supply chain. And so uh, it does sort of make sense to try to mitigate your risk by spreading that around and trying to bring some of those uh, capacities onshore, especially with some of the tensions and things going on uh, around the world, especially in the Asian regions right now. We don't want to run into a, a situation where uh, we're cut off from you know, some of the biggest sources of supply at the global market. That would not be a position that, that would serve the United States uh, particularly well. So the $52 billion is really to make sure that that 12% figure doesn't continue to shrink relative to the investments that other countries are also making in their own uh, manufacturing uh, capabilities. We want to to make sure we still have a global presence uh, on the world stage. And could there be other incentives? I mean, if you look at chip fabrication facilities, they are big, they take a lot of space, they use a lot of electricity, they use a lot of water, they use a lot of chemicals, and they have smokestacks, not smoke, but exhaust stacks for whatever else is going on in there. I mean, in this country, it could take 10 years of litigation to change a two-lane road into a three-lane road for 10 miles. And so I wonder if there are other areas of policy that could encourage chip manufacturing on its own because some of the disincentives have been taken away. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that uh, one of the elements of the CHIPS Act is uh, that there are tax incentives and investment tax credits for building certain types of facilities or expanding your facilities. You know, another part of it is that it's not just the defense sector or some other sector. It's really a 
kind of a whole of government approach that they're, they're trying to take with it. So energy is uh, very important. You know, they rely on ships, uh, your healthcare, your um, you know, aviation, all these things uh, really rely on ships. And so collaborating across these different government agencies and these different sectors, I think, uh, is one incentive that uh, you know, can kind of push people to, uh, to to produce more chips. You know, it's a complicated problem. There are a lot of reasons why things went overseas in the first place, the cost of labor and, and things like that historically. But we've been seeing that since the, the CHIPS Act has uh, been announced and then passed that Lots of companies are uh, saying that they are going to bring back their uh, manufacturing capabilities to the states or, or open up new facilities, places in Ohio and Arizona and New York and elsewhere around the country. And so it seems to be uh, effective so far in incentivizing companies to uh, to open up new new fabs. But it sounds like Congress and the administration and the federal apparatus behind all of this can't let up now that there's more work to do. But certainly there's a lot of work to be done as far as uh, just figuring out uh, how to allocate the money. There will be, a, I guess, a process where people submit applications for grants to, you know, build these new uh, facilities. And there will be new uh, centers that are that are going to be set up across the country over the upcoming year or so. And so, you know, it's just we're still in the early stages. You're looking to see where the chips fall. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Zach Collier is Assistant Professor of Management at Radford University. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with some links to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. 
So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. 
Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere. 
but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.